When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have one image which I think was Nicaragua. And that I saw just shortly after I arrived. I think it was within days of arriving in 1980. There was a big concert, solidarity concert in the National Theatre. And the National Theatre, very impressive building with beautiful staircase with red carpets and everything. Very luxurious for Nicaragua. And we were standing down in the hallway and there was a... Coming down the stairs was a woman dressed in military uniform. Uh, and I blinked and looked again. Her uniform was specially made maternity uniform. She was armed. She had a maternity uniform on and she had her little girl in a little white party dress and they had been at the concert. And I thought, that is the new Nicaragua. I think Nicaragua became a place of pilgrimage. Uh, I think internationalists got involved in different ways in Nicaragua. Some of them went to the remote areas, some of them paid with their lives. Uh, others, some of them got off on the fact of being in, the, in a place like Managua and didn't venture far out into the, the countryside. Um, I think for all of us, it was a, a rude awakening in terms of, of how the world works and in terms of the ruthlessness of a regime that sets out to destroy something which I believe was fundamentally good and which was about creating a new society. It's a very beautiful country. I mean, the scenery is really, really striking. It's a country of kind of lakes and volcanoes and I suppose the clichés of what we think of a tropical country to be um, would all be represented there. You could also see from above Managua, it's a very unusual city in that it was almost completely destroyed by an earthquake in 1972. Um, people say they're half-jokingly that the only two buildings to survive were uh, the Bank of America and the Intercontinental Hotel, which shows you whose side God tends to be on. So it had that odd kind of flattened landscape um, and no heart at all. I mean, it's a city that doesn't have any centre. It was so uh, completely destroyed by this earthquake that it's like, you know, five square miles of ruins more than uh, what we would think of as a regular city. So to see that was very striking. That was a bit of a shock as well, to go out and find that it wasn't this perfect nirvana that one had read about and that uh, all revolutions are imperfect and that running a revolution is not inconsistent with, uh, way, with having too much control and using your power uh, in a way that disadvantages the people who don't have that power. So all of that was just uh, quite a shock. And the Nicaraguans were a bit like us, you know, some of them were good, some of them were talkers, some of them were blows, some of them were wonderful, some of them were quiet, some of them were shy... You know, uh, that was another shock to find that the fact that you're in a revolutionary situation doesn't really change people's personalities. Ay, Nicaragua, Nicaraguita, recibe como prenda de amor este ramo de siempre vivas y jilinjoches 
que hoy florecen para vos cuando yo beso tu frente pura beso las perlas de tu sudor más dulcita que la frutita del piguilote y el jocote trona In July 1979, the Sandinistas swept to power in Nicaragua. A popular revolution which overthrew the US-backed Somoza dictatorship. Scarcely six months later, Val Roach stepped off the plane in Managua, the capital, and spent the next five years working as an advisor to the revolutionary government at the Ministry of Planning. The first of hundreds of Irish internationalists who travelled to Nicaragua during the 11 years of the Sandinista revolution. To understand the mid-70s in Nicaragua, I think you've got to go back to 1972, which was the earthquake. That was a year which many would refer to as a turning point uh, in the country. In It was actually Christmas Eve 1972. There was a massive earthquake in which 22,000 people died, but many, many, many more. The, the country was never the same again after that earthquake. It had particularly hit the capital city, Managua, and it had hit, as indeed earthquakes do, people of all classes, both urban and rural, all walks of life. People watched as the international aid, instead of actually going to reconstruct the country, was actually siphoned off by the Somoza family and by a small group of families who were close to them. And there was a growing anger in Nicaragua because of it. And that was being expressed, particularly, I'd say, as in many countries, by the student movement um, and by others. And the response of that by the government was that of repression. Uh, so when I was there in 1974, it was a time of military repression, a time when the streets were, um, there were police, National Guard, army, tanks, and a great feeling of fear in the country. Indeed, the person I was travelling down through Central America for uh, a student Christian organisation, and my main contact in Nicaragua, who I had was to meet to discuss a literacy programme, had actually been killed a couple of days before I arrived. And when I asked for her, I went to her house to ask for her, and her family and everybody said, be quiet, be quiet, don't tell anybody that's who you're looking for, because they will come to look for you too. So it was a time, it was a very, very um, frightening time, actually. And you could see that... The situation was so volatile that it was not going to continue. When I arrived that second time, I, firstly, I was arriving with a small baby, which was where the focus of most of my attention was. We were moving into an extremely hot country. We arrived in during the rainy season, and the focus of my attention, I suppose, to some extent, was, was settling down into that. That particular week when I arrived was the week of the um, that the brigades were going out for the literacy campaign. And that was a sort of very exciting time in the country. The universities were closed, the uh, secondary schools were closed. 
and the students were going out. They had had some intensive training on teaching literacy and they were going out to the rural areas because Nicaragua was a country with 73%, I think it was, illiteracy. That was brought right down to 13% illiteracy in the space of six months through this big national literacy campaign. So that was a time when there was, you know, the whole focus of the country was on that. There was a great feeling that here we are, we've got the possibility to really do something. And although we've got very little resources, all we need to do is organise ourselves and, and it'll work. And there was just this huge feeling that one could get caught up in immediately of being able to become part of that, do something, and that nothing was impossible. There was an absolute feeling that this was going to work. The sort of poverty that was there would shock people who have never travelled overseas or never travelled to third world countries. But the situation for most people was so dramatically better than it had been in that. uh, And I suppose that the thing where it really hits is when you see people with children who are hungry or people, children who can't get medical attention. And those were the two things that never happened to Nicaragua at that time. No child went hungry and uh, no child was without access to medical attention. There may not have always been the right medicines there because of the boycotts, but certainly there was that feeling of that the very desperate, the, the real needs were being met. There was rice, there were beans... There was the maize flour for making tortillas. When I arrived first, that enthusiasm that we can do anything, this is our country now, we've got to do something about it. And that great feeling of everybody saying, we'll all pull together and, you know, we'll make it work. That began to get worn away with exhaustion. And that was an exhaustion that everybody felt at every level of the society. At the top level, people were desperately trying to find how to overcome the the boycott. So in the Ministry of Planning, people sat late into the night trying to make plans. Whereas uh, in back home, people, again, people on my street or whoever would have the problem that um, they couldn't get buses because the buses kept breaking down because there were no spare parts because of the... Um, the, the United States had put a... a full cordon around Nicaragua, so trading, there was nothing coming in or out of the port of Corinto because they had mined the area around the port. So the buses weren't running and so people had to walk places and then the cost of the buses went up because it was so difficult to get the the parts in and therefore people couldn't afford to, so they had to... So gradually at all levels of society, people were getting tired. And getting quite despondent. And then out of that came the... That's where it started to fragment in terms of people, some people who kept saying, no, we've got to keep on trying, we've got to hold together, you've got to make this thing work, and other people saying, it's useless. You know, the United States is just so big and we've it's impossible for us to win and we might as well give in now and um, at least have some sort of peace and, and normal life. And, and a great, great change took place. That was combined with fear because we were constantly on alert and constantly training for defence of the country against 
what was the possibility of imminent attack. So anybody, practically everybody, there weren't, not all foreigners, but certainly some of us felt that we also wanted to defend ourselves. And I think particularly in my case where I had a child, I felt I'm not going to just sit here with my arms folded if there's an attack. So we actually joined in the defence and the training for defence of the, in my case, it was the city of Managua. Um, we were all in it together, basically. Um, and that was also very exhausting in terms of the contradictions of, I. that was what I felt, and yet in my head I was saying, but at the end of the day it's not my country and maybe maybe I shouldn't be here. Uh, sometimes some Nicaraguans said what are you doing here? This is our country. I don't know what you're doing here. So, you know, it was conflictive sometimes. Uh, The story that always comes to mind when somebody asks me, why did you leave or what happened, was um, my child's third birthday party when it had been rumoured that there would be a United States invasion on the 17th of November, 1983. 83? Yes, I think it was 1983. And so I was trying to plan a birthday party, buy balloons, issue invitations, and at the same time organise my child's evacuation papers. And on the same day, I did the two things. And the the, the conflict, the, the contradiction that was involved, I said, you know, there's something going wrong here. I really have to think about this. As it turned out, she had a birthday party and the US didn't invade. Information has come out since that that, that plan for invasion was real. It wasn't, um, it wasn't propaganda or anything. It actually had been. There were various military reasons why it was called off. But they nearly invaded on that day, apparently. Si nos quitan el pan Nos veremos en la obligación de sobrevivir como lo hicieron nuestros abuelos con el maíz fermentado en la sangre de los héroes. I left Ireland in 83 and uh, I went to live in a community in Los Angeles where I spent a year And during that year, I read a lot about what was going on in Nicaragua and I decided to go down and see if there was some way that I could, first of all, uh, find out, was it for real? And secondly, uh, was there some way that I could become involved in it? Because it spoke to lots of the stuff that was important to me. So I went down in um, in 84. Uh, I went down on a programme which was called Witness for Peace, a two-week programme. I had two letters of introduction. The first one didn't work and the second one did and I ended up spending three years there. By 1984, the Sandinistas were struggling to maintain the new model society that had caught world attention. Benny McCabe was drawn to the financially crippled country as the US-backed Contra guerrillas waged war against Nicaragua from their bases within Honduras. Uh, 1984 was when the Reagan began to up the ante and um, there was a definite sense of the danger of invasion. Um, I remember on a particular occasion the tanks and armoured cars came out onto the streets uh, around the city and 
they dug in and there was this sense of a pending invasion by the Americans. And, and uh, so that was quite dramatic. It looked as though there was going to be a direct intervention. Um, but I think uh, probably the Americans uh, were too wily for that. Uh, they realised that they had the country in a stranglehold. So uh, the policy chosen was slow strangulation rather than direct intervention, because I think the price would have been too high for them to pay had they intervened directly. Life was very tough because uh, uh, the whole economy had to move on to a war footing. Um, the whole focus had to be on survival, had to be on defence. Um, uh, Reagan, the Reagan administration was funding, training, equipping the counter-revolutionaries, uh, the backbone of which were the Guardia, the private army of the former dictator. So slowly there began to be a lot of scarcities. Slowly resources had to be taken from health and education, which were the two priorities in the revolution, were, were health and education and land reform. So slowly the focus moved from being creative into being defensive. I think I found a difficulty later on. I think sort of the initial few months were like the honeymoon period, you know, everything was bliss. You were involved in this very dynamic, very vibrant process. And it was so different because life uh, was so, so vibrant, I think, there. Um. In the elections of 1984, the Sandinistas were returned to power by an overwhelming majority. Although overseen by international observers and seen to be free and fair, the United States refused to recognise their validity. Uh, the first elections were in '84, and you had a number of different um, parties, some of whom were backed by the institutional church, by the Cardinal Obando y Bravo. They represented the values primarily of the large landowners and of the industrialists and of the people who had money and of the exiles in Miami. The people for whom the idea of a new society, and, 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 and this is what the Sandinistas always talked about, was this vision of a new society. And I think maybe um, one of the people who articulated it very well was, um, was Fernando Cardinal, who was the Minister for Education. And another interesting aspect of, of the government was, for me, you had a remarkable coming together of, of a Marxist analysis and a prophetic Christianity which addressed the reality and the lives, the everyday lives of the people. So, so ironically, in this government, which was sort of caricatured by the Reagan administration as being Marxist and communist, you had three Catholic priests, one of whom was Fernando Cardinal, who was a Jesuit. And um, some, one day I was in a meeting with him and somebody asked him, um, you're always talking about the new education, um, what do you mean? And he said, let me try and compare it with the old education. He said, under the dictator, the old education, Education set about teaching young people the most important things in lives were to get the exams so that they would get the positions so that they would get the money so that they could buy the things that the system told them they needed in order to be happy and successful. And he said the gasoline that kept that motor going was egoismo, understanding life in terms of what I can get out of it. The new education would try and create a new man and a new woman who would understand life 
in terms of cooperating, in terms of sharing, but more than anything else, in terms of transforming by trying to make the world a better place for having been in it. And he said the gasoline which would keep that motor going was love. So that's what the Sandinistas represented. And I think uh, for me, that's the reason why they had to be destroyed. That's the reason why Reagan sort of had to make a conscious decision to destroy this, the threat of a good example. For me, the model of the Sandinistas was a remarkable model. But I think you learn there too um, in terms of what human nature is like. I wouldn't want to romanticise it or to say that there weren't problems. There were. Um, But it was committed to creating something that I believe was beautiful and worth striving to create. La marimba de chavalos de la tirsa, este tal quincho se la gana a los demás. Con sus diez años no cumplidos todavía, es hombre serio como pocos en su edad. Mientras su mamá se penquea y la rebusca, quincho se faja como todo rayacá. Mañana y tarde vende bolis en los buses para que puedan sus hermanos estudiar. ¡Qué viva Quincho, Quincho Barrilete, el infantil de mi ciudad! ¡Que vivan todos los chavalos de mi tierra, ejemplo vivo de pobreza y dignidad! ¡Que viva Quincho, Quincho Barrilete, su nombre no se olvidará! Porque unas calitas asparges y barriadas It sounds ridiculous, but <clears throat> I mean, it is ridiculous when I look back on it now, but I was 21 and full of, uh, you know, the usual things that 21-year-olds are full of, so I wasn't nervous at all. I mean, when I think of it now, how incredibly unprepared I was to go, um, it really horrifies me. I mean, I didn't speak a single word of Spanish. Um, I hadn't even had all of the correct injections, you know, all of the inoculations that you're supposed to have. Um And really, you know, I was very lucky that I didn't get yellow fever or something. I was lucky, actually, it was an odd thing, sitting on the plane on the way over. The only way to go was to fly from London to Moscow at the time and get an Aeroflot flight from Moscow. So sitting on the plane on the way to Managua, uh, beside me there was a Swedish woman who was a dentist. And uh, the Swedes, all the Scandinavian countries generally were very good at the time and still are at kind of international solidarity work and third world work. So we got into conversation and, uh, you know, she asked me had I had the yellow fever injection and had I got the typhoid injection and the malaria pills and all of that. And I blithely said that I had none of them and watched the blood drain slowly from her face. So she actually gave me the yellow fever injection on the plane uh, as it arrived at uh, Managua Airport and, you know, a bag full of uh, malaria pills and all of that. So she probably saved my life. Joe O'Connor travelled to Nicaragua to witness and write about what he saw as a new kind of socialist revolution. There's a little stretch of, uh, of turf in the middle of Managua around this ugly building, the Intercontinental Hotel, which is like a pyra- giant pyramid-shaped wedding cake. And in the streets around this place... Uh, Gringolandia is what the locals used to call it. There were uh, not really hotels in any sense that we would understand the word, but 
I guess, boarding houses or houses where people would have built, you know, a, a, a kind of very ramshackle extension and, you know, they would have uh, idealistic young foreigners staying there. So that's where I went and I was lucky because I ended up um, staying with a family, which is a great thing. I mean, first of all, it, it, it sort of felt, it felt good to be part of that. But it was an interesting family too because they were very divided about uh, the whole history of the revolution. Back in 1979, all of them had been pro the revolution. Um, and that was an interesting thing about the Nicaraguan revolution, that it really attracted a very broad-based support. The Sandinistas were very much in the leadership, but there were people involved in the church who were in favour of the revolution, trade union groups, students groups, women's groups were very involved in it. So it was a genuinely broad-based thing. But by the time I got there... I suppose there had been a bit of a split. So half of the family, you know, thought that the Sandinistas were great and the other half thought they were, you know, communists and a menace and wanted to take away their rights and stuff. So it was a very quick education that, you know, left-wing politics seen from the vantage point of the Belfield Bar or some pub in Dublin is a very different thing to the reality of life as it's experienced by people in that kind of society. One thing that I have to say I found, uh, you know, humbling in a way yeah, as someone who, who uh, you know, would have difficulties with the, the conservative church in Ireland and all of that was that um, there were a lot of uh, religious people there, priests and nuns, who were absolutely involved in the hard edge of working with the poor every day. And I thought they were they were very inspiring. There was a certain kind of left-wing tourist, as I say. There were a lot of American college kids from places like Berkeley who had come down to Nicaragua for the summer and you almost felt that they wouldn't mind being shot at by the Contras. You know, they wouldn't mind being narrowly missed by a rake of machine gun fire once it didn't hit them and they could be back in Berkeley by, you know, the first day of the new term. There's a certain kind of um, adventurism, I suppose among some people, uh, which was a little difficult to take. And there were some people who were, you know, ridiculously idealistic about the whole thing, and I would probably have tended to be a little bit that way myself, and who thought, you know, it was a good thing. I remember being in a supermarket one day with an American couple who I met. There was hardly any food in the supermarket at all, and they subjected me to a lecture about what a good thing this was, that the Nicaraguan people had been liberated from consumerism, um, and I thought they'd been liberated from food, you know, which, which I wasn't uh, as persuaded about as, as they were. I mean, some of the foreigners who were there were absolutely heroic. And even the ones who weren't, I mean, I, I'm in no position to kind of be superior about people who did go and who did work on the international brigades there to pick coffee. And there were reforestation brigades and all of that. And there were people who gave, you know, six weeks or two months of their time to live in really dreadful, very, very basic conditions and to give of their own labour in order to support the revolution. I was sometimes told by people in the government that because foreigners weren't particularly skilled at picking coffee, uh, the brigadistas sometimes damaged as much coffee as they actually managed to pick. But I think that it was an extremely important uh, thing for the revolution that there was some sense of support I mean, I remember when I was there, Reagan had been in Ireland the year before and people in Nicaragua knew about that 
And they did say to me that they were happy when they saw uh, in the newspapers that there had been quite a large opposition to Reagan, which there was. It was an unusual thing for an Irish-American president. But there were big marches and big campaigns against him. When he addressed the Dáil and Senate, various TDs walked out, including a couple of people who then went on to become government ministers, Princess Rossa and Michael D. Higgins. The country really seemed to be in a state of freefall. You know, just over those couple of months that the blockade was introduced, you know, just the experience of walking around the city, you would see that in the public buildings, you know, the lifts had stopped working and taxis with cracked windscreens and doors hanging off them or no doors because the drivers couldn't get spare parts. I mean, on one occasion I had to go to the hospital with a friend who was ill and, you know, seeing the doctors and nurses having to improvise uh, bandages and in some cases having to improvise artificial limbs from, you know, whatever they could. The country was in a state of absolute crisis. I remember a notice on the wall of the, the emergency room in the hospital where I was with my pal who had food poisoning or some such mild thing. And the notice on the wall was the usual thing, you know, this is for emergencies only. Um, the following are emergencies. And number one was gunshot wounds to the head. And it went down to number five, which was, you know, like gunshot wounds to the leg. And anything less than that, like you weren't going to be seen by a doctor. So the place was in a state of what felt like terminal decline. And I think people wanted dollars because they thought they might have to go. Effectively, the currency of the country had become the dollar. But, you know, the the government insisted that the local currency, the, the Cordoba, uh, was, you know, was the one that uh, we should all be spending. I remember when I was there that the official exchange rate at the airport was 36 Cordobas to the dollar. Um, and people on the street would offer you, you know, three or four or five thousand Cordobas to the dollar. And it got so out of hand that in September, I think it was, certainly just around the time I began to think of coming back, the government kind of legitimised the black market and people could trade at whatever level they wanted. And, I mean, you know, there's no doubt it was... There was inequity there. There were dollar shops, you know, in the city. This city where you couldn't buy bread some days had shops where you could buy um, stereos and video cameras and the local people wanted dollars for, you know, for the limited amount of food that was available on the black market and also to send to relatives and stuff who had left the country. So it was this this kind of odd double think was going on where everybody knew that the currency was worthless, but everybody had to pretend that they thought it was a great thing, that, you know, the plucky little Cordoba was fighting its own little war against the dollar, you know. But it was um, it was fairly laughable. As I mentioned, I went to Nicaragua hoping not to meet anyone from Ireland. And about the second week in, I bumped into a guy called Mick McGohan, who was from Dublin, who was kind of very well known around Dublin as, you know, a person who was big into Nicaragua. A very striking looking guy, he had a Mohican haircut, people would kind of notice him. And in all of the years, we grew up, I mean, it must have been two or three miles away from each other, but we'd never met in Dublin. I had to go to Nicaragua to meet him. So he had a job down there, and I went down one weekend to see him. And that was just a very striking place, not just because of the extraordinary beauty of the place. It was beautiful. But then over the weekend that I was there, there was an incident which I 
described in my novel Desperados, which is partly set in Nicaragua, where there was a dance in the local school hall and it was attended by the young kids who were about to be drafted into the army. So if you took away the fact of where you were, it would have been like a school disco in any other country in the world or in Ireland. But the fact was that by the end of the night, there was this extraordinary sense of sadness pervading the whole thing. And you would see these 16 and 17-year-old boys, you know, openly weeping and full of fear, I imagine, for what was about to happen to them. And it was a very powerful kind of metaphor, I thought, for how decisions that were being made thousands of miles away in the Oval Office of the White House by Reagan and his cronies, decisions made in secret that he wouldn't even tell the American people about. I mean, we know now that he lied time and again to Congress and to the American people about it. But how those decisions were actually filtering down to real lives. You know, it really struck me that, you know, on one level there is ideology and on another there is the Saturday night dance in San Juan del Sur where people are in tears and they think they're going to be killed and how profoundly those two things are connected. So it made a big impression on me in that way. I mean, the Nicaraguan's way of dealing with the uncertainty about tomorrow is to be happy today. I mean, one of my strongest memories, again, was in 1989 when I was um, in the countryside in, a, in an agricultural co-op and there, the Contra were 12 miles away and we could hear them. And there was a big party. The co-op hired a stereo and we all had a party. And I couldn't believe this. I said, you know, we could die. And and the reaction was, well, that's exactly why we're having a party, because um, tomorrow we could be dead. So there's a whole, um, I suppose, there's a whole way of coping with this and a whole mindset that you just uh, develop, because otherwise you would be in a constant state of, you'd just be a nervous wreck the whole time. By the late 1980s, Irish people had started to travel to Nicaragua in brigades to pick coffee and teach skills. For internationalists like Molly O'Duffy, the reality of life in Nicaragua, although difficult, spurred her to return again and again, and finally see the Sandinistas lose the 1990 elections to the US-backed UNO coalition. Constant drills all the time, anti-invasion drills, and there were constant sirens going off all the time at night, which frightened me a bit in the beginning until I realised that they were just routine calls to, you know, these drills and so on. Uh, Every um, neighbourhood was organised for defence, military style. And um, so, so that was ongoing. And the people, and this was one of the things that I just couldn't understand, the people just carried on going. And I I was in a constant state of shock and I just couldn't believe how people could just carry on going knowing that um, 
by the end of the day there could be an invasion. But, I mean, this is what happens when you're in that situation. And, and I became like that later on. Uh, I went through various crises, including the invasion of Panama, when um, there were Nicaraguan jeeps around the US embassy in Managua and there were US jeeps around the Nicaraguan embassy in Panama. And there was a very tense situation and I didn't feel it all the same way. You just get used to it, you just carry on. And that's what the Nicaraguans did. I mean, the first time anybody goes to the developing world, it's, it's a terrible shock. So, I mean, my first impression was just of absolute shock. Although, relatively speaking, uh, the situation was much better economically than it is now. But um, it, it's all relative. And um, to somebody coming from the developed world, the, as I say, the first time they go to a situation where poor means starving and having to make horrible decisions all the time about how to survive... So I found that very difficult. And then the other thing that really struck me and I found very difficult was the war, because the war was still in full swing in 1988. And it was a just war, obviously, that the Sandinistas were waging because it was a war against um, an imperialist invasion and um, a war backed by the US and using every dirty means available to it. But the point is that war, whether it's a just war or not, is a horrible thing. And um, any society running a war, whether it's a defensive war, a just war, whatever, basically militarises and all of society becomes militarised. But I think if you hadn't been there in the late years of the Sandinista, if you hadn't felt the awful burden it was to the Nicaraguans to have been fighting a war for 10 years to defend gains which were being eroded to pay for that war and this terrible desire to be rid of the war and to be rid of um, conscription which explains why they voted the Sandinistas out of office. I think people living there understood that and I think people who weren't there didn't and I think many of us who went there in the 80s and I'd include myself in this to some extent went there because of our own dreams. We turned Nicaragua into one of our dreams and we went out there to see our dream become reality and to some extent it was a disappointment with the Nicaraguans for destroying our dreams. You know it was a very arrogant position because basically we were expecting the Nicaraguans to carry all the burden of revolution and we were quite happy to be sort of the sideshow. So, I mean, I've heard, I heard people, you know, expressing huge disappointment with the Nicaraguans, you know, for voting out the Sandinistas. And, and I, I think that was, um, I think it's a very typical white sort of arrogant line, but I, I think it also was because people did not realise the, the reality on the ground and how desperate Nicaraguans were above all to end the war. Um, the day we were watching the reserve leave Leon, one of my friends, who a Spanish woman, was taking photos of the reserve on their... trucks and a woman turned and spat at her and said um, if you people didn't come to support the government our sons wouldn't go to war which was pretty unanswerable Um, what, what happened with internationalists is we were inclined to go along with whatever the leadership said and to some extent leave our better judgment at home now I honestly don't know what alternative there was to that because it's not our business to be going in telling the Nicaraguans what's wrong with their their system either. But I, I think we were very naive. And some of the things we would have seen that we didn't like actually amounted to something. And we were slow to say that they amounted to something. I mean, at that stage, you know, there were commandantes driving around in big cars that had bars in them with vodka and, you know, and there were, you know, uh, people starving right beside them. So in in that sense, we went along with that and didn't question it. And, um it has turned out that many of these uh, commandantes have gone on to be big businessmen and basically at the moment are negotiating for themselves, really, rather than defending the popular interest. So I think we were a bit starry-eyed, all right. And I think that one of the mistakes we made, too, 
Although, as I say, as since the brigades went to the countryside and met ordinary people, I think we made this mistake less than others who went there, was to identify the revolution with the interests of the leadership. Not necessarily the same thing at all. And um, I think that's a bitter lesson that we've learned since then. In the sense that it wasn't our role to point that out, or it wasn't our role to go in and tell the Nicaraguans how to do it, I, I don't know wh- how we could have been any, how we could have behaved any different. And I think the people were all committed to social justice, and I think that's very important. So I do think there was a very good side to it. And I think that whatever people's reasons for going out there, that a lot of them came back as very good ambassadors for what was going on in Nicaragua and even more so for what was wrong with the US intervention. And in geopolitical terms, that's what the Sandinistas wanted from us and that's what they got, I think, in general terms. I mean, it's a complete fallacy to say that we contributed anything. On one of the coffee brigades I was on, there were 25 of us and between us we collected the same amount of coffee as the Vanguard coffee pickers. So, I mean, they didn't have us there for a coffee-picking prowess. But there were 25 people who came back and described how terrifying it was to be in Nicaragua when Panama was invaded because we thought we were next. So I'm, I, I think um, it certainly was a good thing and, and it represented a vision of, of, of social justice. But I mean, I think it also represented a desire to have adventures and a lot of other things as well. I just think it was much more mixed up than it might appear at first. Ay, Nicaragua, Nicaraguita, recibe como prenda de amor este ramo de siempre vivas y gilinjoches que hoy florecen para vos. Cuando yo beso tu frente pura, beso las perlas de tu sudor, más dulcita que la frutita del pigüilote y el jocote trona. because I was constantly struck when I was there by um, how incredibly like what I imagined post-revolutionary Ireland to be Nicaragua was. I mean, the whole sense of a country being divided down the middle and in some cases literally brother fighting against brother when a few years previously they'd united against a common enemy. Many of my European friends often said that I was more Nicaraguan than than most and that they felt I would probably live there all my life. I think the people who were killed stand out in my mind because they paid the price, they paid the ultimate price. The change has been so drastic in Nicaragua that at the moment... Nobody talks about the war. It literally is, don't talk about the war. And you could be forgiven for going, um, for thinking that there never had been a war in Nicaragua. And you'll only find, if you come as an outsider, you'll only find out anything about the situation in the 80s by little comments here and there. Se enterro en el surco de tu 
If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other documentary on one productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.